1: Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick.
0: Real love is
1: calling,
2: I mean, if there was a life that you lived before you came to know Christ, and now you are a different person because you've come into relationship with Christ, because you believed, you ain't Galleon, you believe the good news. You can say the same thing, can't you? You can say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. All right? None of us is perfect. I hope you can look back at the way you were a year ago and feel like you've made some improvement. That's what's important. Okay? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. This is
1: Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through 1 Corinthians, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. If you've come to trust Christ as your Savior, you have a similar story and can see that you're only where you are because of God's grace. Pastor Gary helps you remember this today when you look at all the ways God has changed your life. You might not have an astounding testimony, but maybe God has helped you in the area of anger or impatience. And you're learning to respond out of the spirit instead of the flesh. These seemingly small amounts are to be celebrated as God's grace is at work changing you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Open Jump in and you'll find the cornerstone's
2: your connection Run towards your new life. Verse 7, he says, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What does he mean by that? Well, here's what he means: Paul was not a part of the original Twelve. He came to faith in Christ some 10 years after the resurrection of Christ. And then he will be 10 years after that before he even launches his ministry. So he speaks about his conversion experience. You remember the story in the book of Acts? When Paul came to faith, how did Paul come to faith in Jesus Christ? Because Paul was persecuting Christians. He was a Jew who was zealous to defend Judaism. And originally, Paul had a problem with the whole concept of Jesus and salvation through faith in his sacrifice on the cross. So as a good, zealous Jewish man, I'm going to start to kill Christians because they are a threat, they're a heresy to the truth of the law and who God is. And so he's on his way to Damascus, Paul is, to persecute the church, to persecute Christians, to either participate or be complicit in the death of Christians, trying to be zealous for Judaism. When on the road to Damascus, the Lord Jesus appears to him. I mean, visibly shows up and appears to him on the road to Damascus. And Paul then is awakened in his soul as to the truth who jesus is because jesus confronts him saul saul paul's original jewish given name why do you persecute me and he identifies himself as being the lord as being jesus and and paul then recognizes him and paul falls on his face before jesus and he's blind and then god has to send ananias to bring sight to his eyes and so it's this wonderful conversion experience and even today we talk about somebody who has a dramatic conversion experience we say but they had a damascus road experience well it's talking about the experience that paul had here but because he was a an eyewitness of the risen lord That's why he says, I was one abnormally born because Jesus appeared to him in this miraculous way on the road to Damascus, unlike how the original apostles were chosen. How were the original apostles chosen? They were eyewitnesses of Jesus because they lived with him and they ate with him. And then they were witnesses when Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to them. Well, this is, this is years later. And so Jesus has already ascended back into heaven. So Jesus makes a miraculous appearance to Paul and Paul then is legitimately an apostle because he's an eyewitness of the resurrected Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit he performs miracles. But this is why he says, but I'm like one abnormally born. In other words, I became an apostle in an unusual way. I believed in Jesus and saw his resurrection as an eyewitness because he appeared to me. So he's referring to himself as an apostle, although one who became an apostle by a different method. He says, and he adds there in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles. He's very very humble about this. He says, I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because, he says, I persecuted the church of God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a great line just to underline in your Bibles because that can be all of our testimonies, right? I mean, if there was a life that you lived before you came to know Christ and now you are a different person because you've come into relationship with Christ because you believed you angelion you believe the good news you can say the same thing can't you you can say but by the grace of god i am what i am all right none of us is perfect i hope you can look back at the way you were a year ago and feel like you've made some improvement that's what's important okay but by the grace of god i am what i am and his grace to me was not without effect he says, no, I worked harder than all of them. All the other apostles, I, I had to kind of, in a way, I had to kind of prove that I was legitimate. He says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me, was God working through me, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He says, I'm preaching the same good news that the original apostles preached. I'm a part of them. I don't consider myself worthy to be numbered among them, but this is the same good news. And then he ri- writes in verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? So now we get some insight. This is what some of the church of Corinth were thinking. We're not really sure we believe in this whole resurrection thing. We're, we're not really sure that we, we weren't there. It's now 56 AD. We, we weren't there to see Christ. We're not sure we believe it. We're not even sure we believe it for ourselves either. So he goes on to, to tell them. He says in verse 13, Well, if there's no resurrection of the dead that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now again, the word useless there, if you have a King James Bible, it uses the word vain. King James says, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is also in vain. It is the Greek word kenos, meaning empty and useless. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our ministry, our preaching, our preaching, is useless, it's empty, and so is your faith. Now, he's going to make the argument here through chapter 15. He's going to say that three things are in vain or useless if there's no such thing as a resurrection. He says, our faith is in vain. He's going to say also here, our preaching is in vain. And then he's going to add at the end of the chapter, and our work for God is in vain, if not for the resurrection in general and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular. He says, all right, if if this is not a true thing, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, your faith is useless. What are you believing in? And my preaching is useless. What good is it for me to preach about this good news if you don't even believe it was real? And he said, why should we work to serve the Lord if the Lord didn't really rise? Why are we doing any of this? All right? So this is where he's going with all of it. Verse 15, he says, More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Okay? I guess we're going to be liars then, because we've been going around saying that Jesus rose from the dead. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile or again, some translations say you believed in vain, you were still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. He says, you know, everybody else who's previously died and they had faith in Jesus, if there's no such thing as a resurrection, I guess there's no hope for them. They're lost. He says in verse 19, this is a great verse, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. If your faith is only about the here and now, and you think, for example, that the gospel is about how to manage your life a little bit better, which, by the way, is unfortunately the way sometimes the gospel is being preached in some churches, that it's only a coping mechanism for you to help manage your life in a better way. Let me tell you something. If, if, if it's only for this life, for here and now, we are to be pitied more than all men. Because let me tell you something, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the hope of eternal life for us after we die. This life is but a drop in the bucket of the great ocean of humanity compared to your life after you die. That is the greater and more eternal aspect of life. And if Jesus Christ hasn't risen from the dead, we are to be pitied more than all men because... If this is all we're believing Christ for, is how to kind of have a better life, we're to be pitied more than all people. The truth and the good news is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead so that you and I can have life after death and go to heaven when we die. It's about our eternal reward in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen to that? That's what it's all about. So he adds in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits, circle that, I'll explain it to you. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. So the word first fruits there, um, we got to, We got to go to the Old Testament a little bit to understand what he means by this. And you don't need to turn there, but if you take notes, you can write down Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus chapter 23, Moses writes out the various feasts on the Jewish calendar. Now, how many of you understand that the Jewish feasts, all of them in the Old Testament, foreshadowed or pointed to Christ, some aspect of Christ. How I many of you understand that about the Old Testament feast? For those of you who don't, let me just kind of summarize it real quickly. In Leviticus chapter 23, right after Moses speaks about the Sabbath, then he talks about the first feast on the Jewish calendar to be remembered was Passover. Passover and unleavened bread. That's one of the Jewish feasts. The next feast on the Jewish calendar is the feast of first fruits. The next feast on the Jewish calendar is the feast of Pentecost. Now, just take those feasts for just a moment. The first feast on the Jewish calendar, Passover. All right? Passover was when the Jewish people were delivered from slavery in Egypt. Remember this. And Moses was called by God to be the great prophet to lead the Jewish people out of their slavery and misery in Egypt after 400 years. They were to sprinkle the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of every Hebrew home so that God would pass over that home and not bring death. Because unfortunately, since Pharaoh of Egypt was so reluctant to let the Hebrew slaves go, God had to use an extreme measure to get his attention the death of the firstborn throughout the land of egypt because the hebrew homes were marked by the blood of the lamb they were passed over and death did not come to those homes when did jesus die jesus's death his crucifixion corresponded exactly on the day to the jewish feast of passover historically this is true and it was intentional Because the Jewish feast of Passover was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice of the great Lamb, whose blood over our lives means that death passes over us, and we don't die for our sins. Everybody understand this? There's a reason why Jesus dies on the day of Passover. Because the Old Testament feast was pointing to Jesus' ultimate sacrifice, the shedding of His blood, the Lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Now, Jesus rises from the dead on a Sunday morning, on the day after, follow this, the day after the Sabbath, what day among the Jews is Sabbath? What day? Saturday. In the Jewish scriptures, Leviticus 23, the day after the Sabbath following Passover is the next feast on the Jewish calendar, and that is the feast of first fruits. So first fruits follows immediately on the tale of Passover and unleavened bread. Jesus rises from the dead on the same day on the Jewish calendar as the Feast of First Fruits. What was the Feast of First Fruits? Well, in the Old Testament Scriptures, the Jewish people would take the first of the harvest, and usually it was barley. Barley was the first of the harvest that would come in early. They would take the first sheaves of the grain stalks of barley into the temple of the Lord and wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. It was to give thanks to God for the harvest and here's what they would do they were in essence saying here's the first of the fruit that is to come there's going to be a great harvest that follows the first but lord we're going to give you the first and we're going to bring the first into your house because we know that your provision is great and there's much to follow this is why paul refers to christ as the first fruits because not only did jesus rise from the dead on the feast of first fruits But because, in essence, what he is signifying to us is that as Jesus rose from the dead, he is the first of many to follow. Because for all of us who believe in Christ, we're going to rise from the dead, too. We're going to get glorified bodies, too. We're going to go to heaven, too. So it naturally corresponds with the feast of first fruits. Okay. Now, just to kind of wrap up the whole discussion of the feasts, and then we will get back to 1 Corinthians 15, the next... Feast on the Jewish calendar in Leviticus 23 is the Feast of Pentecost. Pente from the Greek word 50. 50 days after Passover comes the Feast of Pentecost. What was the next thing that happened in the New Testament following the death of Jesus on Passover and the resurrection of Jesus on first fruits? The next thing that happens is Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit falls on the early church on what day? The day of Pentecost. And it all perfectly fits within the jewish calendar because it was all foreshadowing the ultimate fulfillment in christ now in leviticus 23 the next feast on the jewish calendar that follows pentecost is the feast of anybody know trumpets the Feast of Trumpets is the next feast on the Jewish calendar. What is the next thing we are waiting for in relation to the death of Jesus on Passover, the resurrection of Jesus on first fruits, the filling and baptism of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost? The next thing that is to happen in church history, which really is church future, is that there shall be a trumpet call of God that shall be sounded, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall be with the Lord forever so get ready for the trumpet call because it's going to happen now people have asked me all the time does everybody hear the trumpet call or only christians you know is this is this this massive trumpet call that everybody in the world is just like what is that or is it only christians who hear the answer is i don't care (laughs) when the trumpet call sounds i am out of here that's the truth And that's what our hope is. Now, back here to this passage. How much time? Oh, my goodness. We've already. All right. I'm I'm just going to read down to the end of the section here because the rest of this is pretty self-explanatory from all that I just said. So he talks about first fruits, verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Okay. He's the first of the harvest of souls that will get a resurrected body. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And Revelation 1 says that Jesus holds the keys of death, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? All right, let me pause this. This needs a little explanation here. And this has caused a great amount of consternation in the church. So let me just explain this. Does it sound here like you can be baptized for somebody who's dead? It does sound like that. And in fact, even pagans used to do that. They used to stand in and proxy and, and they would be baptized by immersion for somebody who had already died. The Mormon church today practices this. The Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints practice what they call posthumous uh, proxy baptism. Which, which is that you can be baptized... And their doctrine is that if you are baptized for someone in mind, they make a list of people, you can be baptized for those people, and the Mormon church teaches that you should be baptized at least for four generations of those in your family that have died before you, so that in baptism they believe that by being baptized in proxy for someone who has died in your family, they go to heaven. It's a false doctrine, like everything else about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to be brutally honest with you because they do not understand Jesus the way that Jesus is revealed in the Bible, there's a different Jesus that is being preached in the Mormon church. He's not the spirit brother of Lucifer. So, what is being said here is this. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then you must think then that you don't have life after death. Therefore, why do you practice water baptism for dead people? That's what he means here. He's like, you know, water baptism is identifying with the finished work of Christ. Jesus dies, goes in a tomb, three days later he rises from the dead. Water baptism in the New Testament is something that we do to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We go under the water. It's like we are identifying our lives have died to the old self, and we're coming up out of the water. It's a testimony that we're living a new life to the glory of God because of his finished work. And so we rise up out of the water to live a new life. So Paul is basically saying, why then are you water baptized if you don't believe in the resurrection? Because then it would be in as much as you're baptizing the dead. Baptism is a statement of life. Baptism is a statement that you go to heaven when you die and you get a glorified body just like Jesus does. So why would you baptize people who are just dead then if you don't believe in the resurrection? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Verse 30, and as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? He says, I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. You you understand what he's saying? Back in Paul's day, in fact, for about seven centuries, Epicurus, who lived around 300s bc and for about seven centuries there was this epicurean philosophy that existed in the known world and it was surely in paul's day as well and it basically was this epicurean philosophy was you might as well enjoy life and all the pleasures that it offers just in moderation because we're all going to die that's epicurean philosophy and so paul is basically countering that and he's like listen i guess if we don't have life after after death then we you might as well party hardy and live it up because i guess this is as good as it gets For Christians, this is as bad as it gets. This world is as bad as it gets for a believer. If you're a non-believer, this world is as good as it gets for you. So my hope for you is that you put your faith and trust in Christ because there's far better than what this world ever has to offer. Let me finish the section. He says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. He says, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning for there are some who are ignorant of God. He says, I say this. To your
1: shame. The Apostle Paul's message to the church in Corinth was frank and powerful. They needed to make some changes. They knew the truth of Christ because Paul had spent time planting the seeds of truth, they had begun to walk in the ways of Jesus but they had let lies taint their steps. Those lies are common still today. Is there something you've heard from a spiritual leader that just hasn't sat right in your soul? Don't let it take root. Instead, take it to the Bible and to your Heavenly Father. Allow Him to show you what is right and what isn't, and then grow in His perfect truth in love. We're so glad you joined us today on Cornerstone Connection. Pastor Gary Hamrick will continue teaching through 1 Corinthians when you join us next time. But for now, we'd like to invite you to visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to learn more about this ministry. You'll be able to hear past teachings, connect with us on social media, and learn more about the church this program originates from. If you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love to meet you. Come visit us this Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel. You'll find directions and more information on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're excited to have you join us. Thanks for tuning in today, and we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection.